quick disclaimer, it's our annual Halloween episode, and it includes monsters haunting the dark forest, blood, dismemberment, mention of some serious adult themes including sexual assault, and spider goblins. Please see the disclaimer on mythpodcast.com for more info. This week on Myths and Legends, it's our Halloween episode, where we'll investigate the cause of several mysterious disappearances in 16th century Scotland, and you'll see that if a monster is lurking in the dark forest, maybe don't take leisurely strolls there. The creature this week is the spider goblin, and the samurai that just can't be bothered to kill it. This is Myths and Legends, episode 160, Lurking. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today's story comes from a supposedly true account of several mysterious disappearances that happened in 16th century Scotland. I'll get more into the details later, so as to not spoil the story, but we'll jump in at a good place for any creepy story, with children walking through the forest at dusk. girl tugged her sister's hand. She just wanted to go home. The monster... The monster was out here. The girl laughed. The monster. It was just an old tale. Hundreds of people couldn't just disappear. The teenage sister looked up at the boy she had been walking with. The reason they were all out so late. They were on the way home anyway, so what did it matter? It was fine. They would be fine. Shut up. But the girl, who couldn't have been more than five, didn't. She kept saying that she heard things. She saw eyes from the forest. The teenage sister turned from her boyfriend and looked at her little sister. Of course she heard things. It was the forest at dusk. And eyes? There were animals all over. Stop it. They were almost at the village. She turned back to her boyfriend, but he wasn't there. She smiled and called out his name. Come on, now wasn't the time to play games. They had to get home. Their parents didn't like them in the forest after dark, or really, at all. But there was no reply. Don't, the younger girl said, gripping her sister's hand. But the older girl didn't listen. She walked to the forest's edge, still calling out his name. The little girl trembled on the path. She looked up and down the road. When she looked back, her sister was gone too. She didn't wait. She broke off into a run. She had to tell them, had to warn them. It was back. The monster was hunting again. She ran as fast as she could. But as the sun set on the village, her parents were still looking out on the forest, waiting for their daughters, who would never come home. No one knew how many had disappeared. No one would ever really know. The first was just your average merchant, his carriage was found splattered with blood, and investigators followed a trail of slick leaves and broken branches off into the forest, where they found what was left of him. It was four more travelers before the innkeeper hanged. The king's investigators had found that all the travelers had stayed at his inn the night before their pieces were found on the road. He was a surly and combative man. It wasn't too difficult to think that he could be the one behind the heinous killings, a murderous psychopath in chains was less scary than the alternative. 
than what was actually out there. From the moment he died, the people had four days of peace. And then, things really got started. They were convinced it was a monster, a beast like out of one of the old stories. There were rumors of dragons, even, as the body count rose. And even the people that laughed at such a thing had to admit that it was a possibility. There was something out there in the woods. It wasn't human. It was too big, too powerful, too hungry to be a human. Groups of four, five, six travelers disappeared, and even when the riders took off at the sound of screaming from far off in the trees, they found nothing but abandoned carriages or bloody trails when they arrived. The people would be found days later in pieces in the forest or washing up on the beach. Some of the people dismembered in Scotland even ended up on the Isle of Man in Ireland. The marks on what was left of the body didn't resemble any animal known to the medieval world, which, if you've listened to any of the Creatures of the Week, includes a lot of animals. After 40 victims, the locals petitioned the crown for help. After 400, they thought that they might never be free. It went on for over 20 years, with the monster prowling the forest and the sea. Everyone who had seen it had fallen victim to it, so rumors swirled about what it could be, what it could look like. Some said it was a werewolf, or a dragon, others a kelpie, or some other monster come over to terrorize them from the fairy realms. It became more and more brazen as time went on, attacking larger and larger groups, until people began to avoid the forest and the coast entirely. When that happened, the thing's hunting ground expanded, pushing farther into the countryside. Nearly 25 years after those first four travelers were killed by it and the innkeeper hung, over 1,000 victims had lost their lives to the creature in Galloway and the surrounding countryside. Then, a couple on their way home from an autumn festival changed everything. There hadn't been an attack in weeks when the man and his wife were coming home from a fair. The man came armed with a musket slung over his back, and his wife, who sat behind him on the horse, kept watch among the trees. The first sign of trouble, they would spur the horse onto a gallop. If the horse was stopped, he would use the musket and the knife while she escaped on foot. They didn't even have to go through the forest, and they lived nearby, so they shouldn't have an issue but they had stayed at the fair later than they intended for people who didn't live in the village. Growing wary, the farmer urged his horse onto a canter when he felt a tap on his shoulder. There, on the edge of the forest, did he see it? The farmer turned to look in the direction his wife pointed and narrowed his eyes. It was a her, and something was wrong. There was a little girl crawling from the trees. She couldn't have been older than four or five. Something was wrong with her back legs. She wasn't moving them. She was screaming and crying. She had been attacked. The young woman demanded her husband stop the horse. But the farmer only slowed. Stop the horse. She needs help. The man could see that, but if she needed help, then it could be near. No, he wasn't stopping. They would turn around and make for the village to alert the constable and his men. He didn't hear a response until he slowed the horse to turn around. He heard a keep the gun on the tree line. It'll be fine. When the wife slipped from the back of the horse and took off at a run toward the little girl, 
the man swore and pulled his musket from his back. He was less than a hundred feet from the trees, and the girl had been crawling, tears streaking down her face since they spotted her. The farmer, his musket trained on the area around his wife, watched as the woman approached the girl. The girl was dirty and ragged and weeping. Her parents were probably among the uncounted hundreds who had just disappeared. She probably survived because she was so small, slipping away among the leaves. The farmer and his wife had been trying for a kid for about a year now. Maybe this horrible thing could be a blessing for all of them. Maybe they were supposed to rescue this little girl. That was his thought when, as the wife picked the girl up, she stopped crying and jammed the knife she had been hiding into the woman's neck. The wife screamed, and the husband screamed, and the monster that had terrorized the land for 25 years emerged from the forest. There must have been a dozen of them. They ranged in ages, from childhood to early 20s, and the girl that the wife was holding slid from her arms as the wife lost consciousness. The husband immediately spurred his horse and drew his sword. By the time he closed the gap between the road and the forest, he could see that it was for nothing. She was dead. The child that had lured her out was at her neck, guzzling the blood, while the others had taken out their knives and were feasting on her entrails and organs. The husband recovered himself enough to shout at them, but that only attracted the attention of a dozen hungry pairs of eyes. The husband backed up to keep them from catching his horse by its reins, and he fired, catching one of the older men in the shoulder. It didn't stop the other eleven, though, and the musket took a good minute to reload. When he wasn't panicked on horseback, he looked on what remained of his wife, said he was sorry, and turned his horse, spurring it to a gallop toward the town, while the strangers returned to their meal. When the authorities rode from town with the farmer, there was nothing where the wife had fallen, save a few scraps of flesh and a whole lot of blood. They didn't even leave footprints. If the farmer hadn't been there to see them, hadn't told them that the beast that had haunted their lands for most of their lives wasn't a beast at all, they would have thought it was just another attack. They didn't now, though. Half a dozen mounted gunmen rode into the forest, followed by three times that number behind them. They were gonna find these people. The monster would die tonight. Except the monster didn't die that night, or for the four nights that followed. Even though the king's men searched under every log and inside every bush in the forest, they not only didn't find anyone, they didn't find any trace of anyone. Some might have even doubted the farmer's story. It wasn't until the king himself sent a group of bloodhounds that they had any leads. The bloodhounds immediately picked up the scent and pulled through the woods only for a moment. They weren't going deeper into the trees, they were going to the beach. The people with the bloodhounds assumed that the group had fled to the water to avoid anyone following their scent, but they didn't. The bloodhounds ran down the beach. The people had fled to the sand, but they hadn't gone into the water. The authorities raced for a quarter mile until the trail went cold. The people apparently dove into the water toward a rocky outcropping. The pursuers helped the dogs up over the rocks, but they didn't pick up the scent on the other side. Wherever the strangers went, the bloodhounds couldn't follow. The trail had truly gone cold. As the authorities tried to pull the dogs back to town, though, the bloodhounds wouldn't let up. 
They stood, pulling and baying at the rocks. The pursuers looked at each other. What was going on? They sighed and showed the dogs the place where the trail had gone cold. See? Nothing. But that wasn't entirely true, not anymore. And the time it took them to go around the rocks, go down the length of beach on the other side, find nothing, and then try to get the dogs off the beach, the tide had gone out. Now, there was still rocks and sand, but there was also a small grotto. The hounds howled at the mouth of the cave. Three men stayed there, while the others went back to town to get more men. By the time they returned, and someone was swimming into the cave, it was midday. Six more were in the water, and six on the beach. All had muskets or flintlock pistols on the cave. Inside, the first man sent word back to the others. The dogs were right. There was something here. He climbed a length of rocks that resembled stairs, beyond any part that might be underwater when the tide came back in, and he saw the first glow of firelight. This guy was the first guy in the cave, of what he knew contained at least 12 murderous cannibals. He had been working for the king for years. He wasn't lacking in bravery. He took one look into the torch-illuminated darkness and screamed. We'll learn about what he found and the backstory behind what's going on in that cave, but that will be right after this. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. All right, now back to the show. Alexander Sawney Bean was born in the county of East Lothian, about eight or nine miles east of Edinburgh. He was a ditch digger like his father before him, and he absolutely hated it. I think there's a spectrum between backbreaking, nonstop 16th century labor and complete laziness but the record comes down hard against Sawney Bean, as he's called. He just didn't want to work. We don't know how he met Mrs. Bean, but we do know that, in her, he met someone who helped him become his true self. Together, the pair left their village, and Bean's parents died without ever knowing what happened to him. In fact, Bean disappeared after that, and for four years, neither he nor Mrs. Bean saw the light of day. Together, they had found in each other someone who would fulfill and encourage their darkest urges and plunge them still further. We don't know when the couple first killed together, but they seem to have liked it. We can only guess that they lived in the forest before, on the shores, they found the grotto. It was perfect. The caves stretched on inside the earth for nearly a mile, and there was air moving through it. There were tiny cracks that emptied out through the rocks and into the forest so they could maintain fires inside, even with the front sealed. And it would be sealed for at least half of a day. When the tide came in, the grotto was completely underwater. The entrance to the underground caves, however, was up high enough in the rocks that it stayed completely dry. Mr. and Mrs. Bean started out on their own at first, luring merchants into the forest and murdering them for money. 
in the early days, the attacks from the couple would be indistinguishable from your average bandit attack. Then, they had another idea. What if they didn't need the money? They had shelter. All they needed was food. They dragged one of the merchant's bodies back to their home, and that problem was solved. Their children, when they had children, joined them. They knew no other life than the caves. So children as young as three started serving as bait for the travelers and villagers. Everyone was looking for a monster that no one even suspected a child until the hands came from the darkness. In total, the clan grew to about 45. And if you're thinking that that math doesn't add up, that Mrs. Bean can't have 45 children in 25 years, you're right. Wanting to check off all the boxes of sickening taboos, it got pretty messed up in that cave. Sonny Bean had children with his own daughters. Brothers and sisters were together. It was abusive and depraved and completely cut off from the outside world. As the family grew, so did their appetite. And the killings were so frequent that travelers began to avoid the area altogether. That was a reason why half a dozen of them had attacked two people on horseback, nearly devouring the wife of the farmer on the spot. They were as desperate as they were hungry. Their desperation led to their one mistake on that one night when they were spotted by the husband. Once the village and the surrounding countryside learned that it wasn't a beast, but a roving band of incestuous cannibals, the fear disappeared. A monster was a mystery. It could be anything. People were people. The village was roused into a fury. It was truly a nightmare scene for that first investigator who entered the cave. In the torchlight, he saw legs, arms, thighs, and even the hands and feet of men, women, and children hung up in rows like dried beef. They were even pickling the limbs. The investigators, pistols drawn, passed alcoves filled with money, gold and silver, and rings, swords, pistols, clothes, all taken but never used or sold. The family had all the food it needed from its victims, and it never used the guns. The noise would give it all away. In the end, the family didn't put up a fight. They didn't know how to use the guns they had taken, and, in the narrow passageway, the investigators had them trapped. It took the better part of a day, but the Crown extracted Sawney Bean and his wife, alongside eight sons, six daughters, 18 grandsons, and 14 granddaughters. The youngest, a girl, was just a baby who was less than a year old. The whole village came out to see the family of Sawney Bean, chained and in multiple wagons as they were taken to Edinburgh. They had caught the family dead to rights, so justice was as cruel as it was swift. They chained up the women and made them watch as they cut the male family members' arms and legs off and they bled to death, spitting curses until the last. The women were burned alive. There's one small part of the story that continues. It's said that one of Sawney Bean's granddaughters escaped. Whether it was the baby who was whisked away by the authorities and not executed because she was a baby or because it was someone else who was horrified by the caves at a young age and slipped away in the night is unknown. But what we do know was that she was adopted by a family not close but not far from the beach where Bean and his clan lived. If she was just a baby, she grew up with no knowledge of her family or what it had done, only that a clan of cannibals had been arrested and executed around the time she had come to live with her mother and father. As time went on, though, and the horrifying tale of Sonny Bean grew in the public consciousness, the people began to wonder about the orphan girl 
who showed up when the youngest granddaughter of Sonny Beam would have been an infant. Her parents confided in a couple of friends, telling them of the girl's true heritage. And soon, an angry mob was storming the tavern where the girl worked. They were worried that the apple didn't fall far from the tree, so they hung the young woman from a tree to ensure that the hated line of Sonny Bean ended with her. A grotesque story ending in one final tragedy. So yeah, fun pick-me-up Halloween episode. These events were, for a long time, held to be a true story. Now, not so much. The events supposedly took place in the 16th century, in Scotland, during the reign of King James VI. In fact, during early tellings, he personally led the search, holding the bloodhounds himself. This clear historical link helps lend the story credence. At first, until you realize that, for one of the largest missing persons listed in history, there's absolutely no mention of this story in any of the contemporary records. Monster, serial killer, whatever they thought it was, it seems like it would be enormous news if 1,000 people went missing from a region over the course of 25 years. I mean, Scotland only had a population of about 800,000 at the time, and if Sonny and his clan not only killed an eighth of a percentage of the entire country, but the king himself led a 400-person manhunt, you would think there'd be some mention somewhere. But there isn't. When it comes down to it, it's a story to sell books. Scottish historian Louise Human laid it out in an interview with the BBC, saying that the books detailing the story of Sawney Bean were sold in England, not Scotland. And they were probably just playing on English stereotypes of Scottish people. Even down to the name, Sawney was a term used to describe a cartoonish Scottish character, with the takeaway being, look how barbarous the Scottish people were. They made a monster like Sawney Bean. Still, the idea of a group of hard, unrepentant murderers living right near you, and you having no idea, or taking a walk in the woods, and feeling like the woods are looking back at you, watching, waiting, it's a chilling idea. And so I think that's why the story has continued on to the modern day. And it's actually inspired horror for generations, up to the 20th century, where it was the inspiration for Wes Craven's horror classic, The Hills Have Eyes. Next week, we're back to normal with some Japanese fairy tales that include being a short-order cook for demons and show how a horrific tragedy worked to the benefit of one couple's dating life. If you'd like to support the show beyond leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or telling a friend, there's also a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of a life-size horse lamp, that's a lamp that's basically a $3,500 metal horse sculpture with a lamp on its head, I don't know why either, you can get extra episodes source pack ebooks and ad-free versions of the show that aren't the price and size of a large horse. Check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info on the membership. Oh, and uh, just a heads up, it's a super long creature of the week this week. It's like basically another story. So, you know, settle in. The creature this week is the Goblin Spider from Japanese Folklore. The samurai sneered. Goblin spider. Ugh. He motioned to the storyteller. If he was going to keep talking, he better keep pouring. The villager refilled the samurai's cup, and the man drank deep. Okay, what was it? The villager said that there was a... 
a thing that lurked in the temple up the road. No one had seen it and lived. Countless samurai had passed through the town and dozens had gone to confront it, but none of them returned. It lived at the old, abandoned temple just up the road. Bandits, the samurai uttered before setting his cup down for a refill. The villager motioned and the cup was refilled. It's not, it's a spider, a spider goblin, the villager managed. The person serving the drinks shuddered at the mention. <sighs> the samurai pinched the bridge of his nose. No, it's bandits that want to make you think it's something called a spider goblin, so you'll leave them alone. That or it's just an old abandoned temple, the samurai insisted. The village in the temple was next to one of the only safe mountain passes. It was simple. When anybody they asked to go investigate didn't see a spider monster in the temple, they just kept walking. The samurai turned to the man. You know, the villager lived in a lonely, distant, mountainous region, so he could be forgiven for not knowing that there were literally hundreds of stories about haunted Buddhist temples. Seriously, rat monsters, corpse eaters, demons pretending they're the Buddha. Honestly, it was just lazy and tropey of these bandits. Like, come up with an original story, am I right? The villager was getting agitated. Look, he just wanted someone to go kill this thing. Things, people, bandits, the samurai corrected. But no thanks. He already had a master and he was passing through on other business. The samurai heard the clinking and shuffling of coins as the bag was laid down on the table. He became serious. And how did a simple villager get money like that? Villagers, the man corrected. It had been 30 years. 30 years that they had been terrorized by the thing in the temple, just into the mountains. They had been raising money, year after year, for anyone to come and kill it. The samurai furrowed his brow no one returned for the money? That, that's gold. That's a lot of money. So you'll do it? The villager asked. And the samurai finished his drink. <sighs> yeah, yeah, he would. He reached for the pouch of money, but the villager pulled it away with a head shake. Nope. After. The samurai not wanting to delay his master's business another day, left that instant for the temple. The villager was right. It wasn't close to the village, but it wasn't far off either. He chuckled to himself as he found the path up to the temple. <laughs> Spider goblin. It was a dark temple. That was it. There were enough things to be afraid of in this world without adding more nonsense out of legend. When the samurai finally saw the temple, what initially caught his attention wasn't that it looked dilapidated and crumbling like no one had been there for years, or that the forest around it was scraggly and overgrown. It was that there was a lantern burning out front. On one thing, the villager was right. There was someone or something here. The samurai rested one hand on his sword while he opened the door with the other. Inside he found, huh, it was, it was normal. The place was clean? There was a little dust, but the only reason he knew it was a little was because there was a lot on the Buddha statue. Instinctively, the samurai removed his sandals and took his hand from his sword. He had been in bandit hideouts. He had been in dilapidated temples. He had been in dilapidated temples being used as bandit hideouts. This was none of those things. That's when the samurai heard the plucking of strings from somewhere, 
far off in the temple. It was a samisen, a traditional Japanese stringed instrument. The samurai strode deeper into the temple, relaxing fully when he saw who played the instrument. The priest. The man must be pushing 80, and his hair swayed as he did, rocking to the soft, sweet music he played on his instrument. The samurai stood in the doorway and listened until the song was over. When the priest opened his eyes and, with only a slight gasp of surprise, greeted the stranger, he invited the samurai to sit for some sake, and the samurai gratefully accepted the invitation. It was over the drinks that the samurai asked about the goblin spider. The priest chuckled. Yes, the samurai was like all the others, coming to share a drink with an old man before continuing on their way. The myth of the goblin spider was what kept him up here, like a prisoner. The village was the only one in miles in these mountains. They warned all who came through. The samurai was confused, so why not go down there and tell them that you're real, that you're an old priest who needs help? The old priest shrugged. The only thing more terrible than an actual monster is fear. He leaned back with a frown. He was a priest, and as soon as he told them the truth, it wouldn't just be a goblin spider in the temple, but a shape-shifting goblin spider. They believed what they wanted to believe. The samurai took another sip and agreed. Who still believed in things like goblins or demons or oni? The things he had seen. The things he had done. Humans were enough to be afraid of. The pair kept talking until well past midnight, with the samurai taking the instrument to strum out a few songs. The priest learned of the samurai's exploits and the samurai learned of the humble man who had spent nearly three decades as a mythical monster. The samurai did have a question. Why was the outside of the temple so overgrown and dilapidated, when the inside was pretty impeccably maintained? I mean, except for the Buddha. The priest shrugged. He was only one man. He was old, too. The temple was enough for him. Hmm, the samurai said. And the pair was silent as the samurai picked out a melody on the instrument. When he was done, he held the samisen in his left hand and finished his drink with his right. Okay, okay. One last question before he went back to the village. What happened to the priest? The old man was confused. He, he was the priest. What was the samurai talking about? The samurai set the cup down. Really? So he was some prisoner who, without a farm or any contact with the outside world, got candles, sake, and rice? Who cleaned the temple but didn't dust the Buddha? Was the old man alone? Was he just some twisted old psychopath, luring travelers up the path, pumping them full of wine and then killing them in their sleep? The old man shrugged. Sometimes, he said with a smile. That was the easiest way, of course. The samurai nodded. Well, he had to give the old serial killer props. The man didn't shirk back from his sword. Even with the man's bravery, the samurai wouldn't promise him a quick death. He didn't deserve it. The samurai sneered as he moved to set down the musical instrument and draw his sword. <laughs> the goblin spider. That lie probably proved counterproductive to luring people up here. The old priest nodded. Oh, it was absolutely counterproductive. It kept all but the bravest out of there. It was counterproductive, but it wasn't a lie. The samurai cocked his head and blinked. In an instant, the room wasn't the modest, 
well-kept room of an aging priest, but a dank, cobwebbed nightmare where the disrepair matched that of the exterior. The deception was lifted. There were webs throughout, and on each of them hung a wrapped, desiccated corpse of one who had come before him. And the old man? The old man was gone. The samurai moved to draw his sword, but found another surprise. The musical instrument was gone. In its place, a web gripped his hands. He decided what he would do. He would back up to a wall. The goblin spider, an actual goblin spider, had been deceiving him. That's why the old man had been so calm in the middle of the room. The spider was never there. Now, though, he was somewhere in the room. The samurai spun around to see how far he was from the wall and found himself looking straight into the eyes of the giant spider hanging from the ceiling. The spider didn't waste time and bit into the samurai with his fangs. But the bite ended early, and with a scream, the samurai had a bite of his own. He hadn't just stood there, waiting for death. His left hand might have been thoroughly trapped, but his right was still somewhat free. When the room changed, the samurai's fingers found his short sword. He slipped it from the scabbard and quickly slashed at his robes, cutting them free from the web. All this happened in the space of seconds, so that when the spider goblin bit him, the monster was met with a surprise as the samurai buried his sword deep in the monster's belly. A sound unlike any the samurai had ever heard exploded from the spider goblin as the samurai felt the creature's hot blood pour out. The spider goblin unstuck itself and, without a look back, crawled on the walls and ceilings, deep into the darkened temple. The samurai dropped his sword and dragged himself to the formerly tidy entryway. It was now just wall after wall of spider webs. He pushed his way through the first and second. By the third, he was slowing down. By the fifth, he was trapped. He tried yelling out, but the spider's venom had already done its work. His final thought, before everything went dark, was that he couldn't believe there was an actual spider goblin. I mean, come on. Samurai woke up in the village to a parade. The villager that had sought him out the night before was sitting next to him. The samurai inspected himself and saw the remnants of the webs that had been cut away from his clothing. He nearly screamed when he saw the face of the spider goblin, but realized that it was only that, its face. The people were parading the parts throughout the street. It was over. The villager explained, when they heard the spider scream, they were hopeful, so the people of the village grabbed what they could, torches, pitchforks, axes, you name it, and they stormed the temple. They cut the samurai free, you're welcome by the way, found the spider holed up in the temple, and killed it. It was you know, kind of a touching moment, where the people that had been living in fear of something rose up and defeated it. It was poetic, and contained copious amounts of gooey green spider innards, as the best poems always do. The samurai was guzzling a cup of water. He gestured to the villager. The man cocked an eyebrow. Oh, the samurai wanted to be paid. Well, the job was for him to kill the spider goblin. He almost killed the spider goblin. So you could say he almost got paid. The samurai scowled and made to draw his sword, but he could barely lift his arms. The villager laughed. 
the samurai was going to want to wait for that venom to wear off. All right, thanks for everything, bud. When the samurai finally recovered enough to walk, he decided not to press the issue and continued on with his journey. He wasted enough time already. As he passed the temple, the place where he fought a monster that shouldn't have existed, he felt a chill. He wondered what else was out there. What other things from legend watched from the darkness? What other stories from the old times were true? What if they were all true? He crossed the mountains, knowing a little bit more and a little bit less about his world. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes, and I want to say thanks again to Simply Safe for sponsoring us this week. Simply Safe makes home security easy with no contract, hidden fees, or fine print. For just $15 a month, you get 24-7 professional monitoring throughout your home. And Simply Safe uses their revolutionary video verification technology to visually confirm that break-ins are happening allowing police to get to you three and a half times faster. Visit simplysafe.com legends and you'll get free shipping and a 60-day risk-free trial. That's simplysafe.com legends. simplysafe.com legends. All right, thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time.